Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Well, we just heard about what happens in the bedrooms of the elite in Israel and Judah. And uh, it reminds me of a photo I've seen. I've actually been here. This is from the Palace of Versailles. This is a photo of the bedroom that belonged to France's last queen, Marie Antoinette. Now, I don't know if you know anything about Marie Antoinette, but she's known for her very expensive taste. So look at this bed, okay? Imagine this was your bedroom. Not only is this thing massive, it's a huge bed, but it's got a fence around it. There's a gate, a painted gold gate around the bed. There are two giant gold chandeliers with crystal hanging from them and ivory, and there's amazing wallpaper, hand-painted wallpaper. There's curtains. This whole thing is just extra, okay? And that's really what you would expect of a bedroom that belonged to Marie Antoinette. I don't know if you know anything about Marie Antoinette, but she was privileged, okay? You could say she was privileged. She was born into Austria's royal family. At 14, they married her off to Louis XVI, who, and then became, who then became king, and she became the queen of France. At their wedding, he showed up in a suit made of silver, and her dress was lilac colored, but it was made special with these diamonds and pearl in the dress. Again, Mary Antoinette, very well known for her very expensive taste that she didn't pay for, that the taxpayers paid for. She had more than 200 dresses made every year. She had florists on staff and, and chocolatiers on staff, and their whole job was to make sure that every vase and every candy bowl in the whole palace was full. Now, she did not say about the poor, let them eat cake, which according to some legends she did. That didn't, that didn't actually happen. But Marie Antoinette did gamble away a lot of the taxes of the people of France in these very high stakes games of pool and cards. She had a real gambling problem. Meanwhile, the people of France were starving. They were starving. Now, this seems so clearly evil and wrong and selfish. Like, how could anybody justify the royals carrying on this way while the people are suffering? Well, it's because she's a queen. You may have heard of the divine right of kings and queens. In, in, in that thinking, they adorn the queen and the king in, in nice things in order to remind people of their place. Like special people, they belong up here. And the common people, the lowborn, they're, they're, they belong down here. And the, as long as the highborn stay up here, and as long as the lowborn stay down here, as long as everybody stays in their place, as long as there's big no no big storm or scandal, society works. That's generally the narrative for people who live in privilege. But it also happens to be the way things were in the days of Amos. Now, last week we continued in our study of the book of Amos by focusing on what we think is his big idea from from chapter five that. There will be justice, it will roar down like waters, and it'll flow, righteousness will flow like an everlasting stream. So justice is coming, it's, there will be justice, it's not something that we create, it's not something that's our responsibility to do, but it's more something that we surrender to. This morning, we continue through chapter 6, Amos has some harsh words for the people in that culture who think that they deserve it the least. Okay, they're the, they're the highborn. They're the elite. They're the 1%. They're, they're the ones that this morning, we're going to call them the privileged. 
And those are the people in both Israel and Judah whom Amos is going to focus his warning on. Now, the place for us to begin is just to make sure we know what we're talking about when we speak about privilege. What do we mean by privilege? So kids, if you don't know, privilege is what we call it when somebody has an advantage over somebody else that they didn't earn. Okay? It's just you you have this advantage, you didn't earn it, that's a privilege. So if you were born into an English-speaking family, for example, you might have an advantage over some of the kids at your school who maybe may not have been. If you, have, if you come from a family where you have both a mom and a dad at home, two parents at home, you, you might have some advantages over, over some of the kids at school who, who don't have both parents at home. You know, what I mean? you know what I mean? There's other kinds of privilege. And skin color can be an advantage. There is such a thing as white privilege. And we've, we've had some conversations about that here as a church, haven't we? And in white privilege, a white person, okay, might have certain advantages in our culture over a person of color. That's, that's white privilege. Well, there's another kind of privilege, and this is the kind that Amos focuses on today. It's, it's class privilege. In class privilege, you've got people who are in sort of the wealthy elite class, and they have an advantage over people who have less money. So, like, imagine if I'm from a family that's so wealthy that I never needed to worry about whether I was, whether I was going to eat. Like, I never needed to worry where my next meal was coming from. But imagine if my biggest worry when it comes to food is whether my servants are going to cook the food the way that I like it. Okay, that would be privilege. That would be class privilege. Like, imagine if I never had to wait until, you know, the thing that I want, really wanted, I never needed to wait until it went on sale at, at stores. That would be privilege. Imagine if, imagine what it would be like to be in a family where I never need to worry if I'm approved for a mortgage because I don't actually need a mortgage. In fact, we're the family in town that everybody comes to in order to get a loan. Well, that would be class privilege. Imagine, imagine never needing to save up for a trip because you own properties all over the place and you can travel anytime you want. You never need to save up for a trip. You never need to book time off of work. You just go wherever you want, whenever you want. So that's what we mean by class privilege. Now, out in the culture, these kinds of privilege can open all kinds of doors for you, but it is not supposed to be that way among God's people. Now, before we get too far, I do want to say, it isn't a sin to be wealthy. I just feel like that needs to be said. It's not a sin to be wealthy. There's actually nothing wrong with having nice things. There are people who get rich by hard, honest work, and that's great. And we, we would want to applaud that. Some people even use their, their wealth and their fortune in order to advance the kingdom of God. So there are wealthy people who aren't greedy or materialistic. It's just that they're rare. Okay, they're rare. And that's why, you know, you might be familiar with the story of Jesus and the rich young ruler. When this guy meets Jesus and they have a conversation together, the rich young ruler realizes that his wealth matters more to him than anything else. Like, given a choice between being a disciple of Jesus and keeping his wealth and controlling his wealth the way he likes to, he chooses his wealth. Like, given a choice between Jesus being the Lord of his wealth and he being the Lord of his wealth, he, he chooses to be the Lord of his wealth, and he goes away crying from Jesus. He goes away crying because he had much, many possessions. And then Jesus says, it's easier to get a camel through the eye of a needle 
than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. So it's not impossible. It happens. It's just really hard. Now, so please don't mistake me for saying that the kingdom of God is closed to people who are rich. Okay? Don't mistake me for saying that God is angry at the rich because they are rich. That's not what's going on in this text. That's not the problem Amos is trying to deal with. In fact, we can tell from Amos's words what the what the privilege actually looked like. Okay? And there's really three things. There's three ways that it was expressed. One is through pride, one is their greed, and the third is their apathy. So let's talk about their pride and just see if that's what's really what's going on here. Uh, first, right at the beginning of chapter 6, Amos starts out this rebuke of the elite by saying, verse 1, Woe to you in Zion and Samaria, who are complacent, some versions say at ease. Woe to you who are complacent and secure, you notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. Like, woe to you. You are the, the 1% of the population who hold 99% of the wealth and power. All around you, the people are suffering and starving. But you you here, you're relaxing in safety. Woe to you for that. Then he goes on in verse 2. He directs their attention at these other towns who are having a worse time. He says, go to Kalne, go to Great Hamath, and then go down to Gath in, the Philist- in Philistia. Uh, just as an aside, Gath happens to be the, the hometown of Goliath. That's where he was from. So he, so Amos is like, go to these towns, have a look at these towns, Calne and Hamath and, and Gath. Are they better off than your two kingdoms? Is their land bigger than yours? And it's like, no, of course not. Of course they're not bigger. Of course they're not better. Nobody can touch Israel and Judah right now. And, and everybody knows it. And this is a real source of boasting and, and pride for God's people at this time. They're like, we're the biggest, we're the best. No one can touch us. No one can stop us. And that's pride. That's pride. That's when it's pride. Pride is when you need to know you're bigger and better than anybody else. Pride is when you need to know that you matter more. and you, you come to believe that you're too big to fail. You're unstoppable. Well, that's pride. And that's certainly what's going on here. Another thing that's going on here is greed. Okay? Their privilege is marked by greed. They've accumulated these all kinds of possessions, which in itself isn't bad. But they've got these possessions that nobody else has access to and in quantities that no one else could imagine. Amos just pictures them enjoying like piles and piles of these luxurious items. Like in verse 4, your beds are adorned with ivory. You lounge on these couches. You eat choice lambs and fattened calves. By the way, this is at a time when most people in that culture almost never ate meat. They almost never ate meat. Meat is a luxury that they might get once a year during the fe- season, one of the festival seasons or something like that. But almost nobody gets meat regularly. But these people do. You know, you have these parties, you bust out the instruments so that you can have these rich gatherings, almost like you get this, you get rich person karaoke to, when you hang out in each other's bedrooms. You have bowls full of wine. You enjoy the finest lotions. And this is greed. This is greed. It's, it's greed when you care more about those things than you do about people. When you accumulate, when you keep, when you take more than you need and you don't share with people who have none, that's when it's greed. Okay, And that's who God's people have become. They're proud. They're greedy. One more thing that Amos calls them out about is their apathy. Their apathy. Or you might, use, might say indifference. This is when you can't rejoice with those who rejoice. 
you can't weep with those who weep. Now, indifference is different from pride. An apathetic person, an indifferent person, they just don't care about the people around them. They just, they just can't be bothered. Like, it's not so much that they believe they're better. It's that they actually just don't care about other people. Like, notice the other half of verse 6 in this passage. Uh, The other half of verse 6, after having described all of these ridiculous privileges and these things, these luxury items that the people enjoy, you enjoy all these things that you enjoy from, you know, the the, the, your wines by the bowlful, all of these fine, expensive lotions, and verse six, you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph, and you should. When you look at what's happening among your people, Israel, aka Joseph, you should look at what's going on, and, and it should grieve you, but it doesn't, and that's a problem. And back up in verse three, you put off the day of disaster, and you bring near a reign of terror. Yeah, like, yeah, you've protected yourself from foreign enemies. You've made yourselves strong militarily. If It seems like your work is done because you're secure. But in the process, life within the community has become really hard. It's become a reign of terror for some of your people. And you don't care. You're not doing anything about it. You're not doing what you can to change it. So you're indifferent, aren't you? That's what, that's what Amos is saying here. They're indifferent. Other people's problems don't even register. It's not even on their radar. So this is, we're at a point here where the elite of Israel and Judah have come to this place where they are proud, they're proud, they're greedy, and they're indifferent. So that's what their privilege looked like. Now we want to spend a few minutes and just make some observations about this and just see what is the problem with privilege? Like what's so bad about this? Think of this as three of the effects of Israel and Judah's privilege, okay? The first one is is idolatry. The first problem is it's actually idolatry, okay? Like the net result of this kind of a lifestyle is that it renders God obsolete. It does. Like a person who is proud and greedy and indifferent, they actually don't need God anymore because they are their own God. That's when it's idolatry. That's when it's idolatry. And we've talked about this here as a church, about idolatry. An an idol can be anything, even a good thing, that replaces God in our lives, including ourselves. And the idol of self is when we say, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for I've got this. I will fear no evil because I'm here and I don't need anybody else. So it's idolatry. And in privilege... Idolatry really is the problem beneath the problem. Now, another observation we want to make is the observation that these people are super distracted. Now, any one of these three things, pride or greed or apathy, any one of these would be a problem, but it's possible to repent of these. Like if you have a pride problem, or if you've got a greed problem, if you've got an apathy problem, you actually can repent, you can put it down and never pick it back up again. But anybody who's guilty of two of these that's a very serious problem. It's, it's much harder to repent of any two of these. Like, if you're a proud and a greedy person, that's a really hard place to be. If you're a proud and an, and an apathetic person, that's a really hard place to be. Or if you're a greedy and an indifferent person, that's a, that's a really hard place to be. All of these, if you've got any two of these, it's really hard to repent of any two of these at the same time. But if you've got all three... If you're guilty of all three of these, that's a deadly combination. It seems to me there's very 
little hope for a culture whose influencers, whose key leaders, whose decision makers are proud and greedy and indifferent. Like, it's just, it's really hard for me to see good things coming for that city because they're too distracted. They're distracted. Their heads are buried in the sand and they don't think about anybody else. They forget about everything and everybody else. And so they're distracted. So they're so distracted, they're so preoccupied that actually they won't be able to see the storm coming. They won't be able to see the enemy coming until it's too late. And that's certainly what's going to come for Israel in, in this time. So we've made an observation about idolatry and one about distraction. Let's also, one more observation I want to make is about blindness. Something that's unique about these three sins of pride and greed and indifference is that people who are guilty of these three sins, they really don't tend to think that they are. Like these sins aren't like other kinds of sins where it's just really obvious that it's happened. If, you've, if you're guilty of murder, you kind of know that, right? If you're guilty of adultery, you, you know that. Proud people don't believe that they're proud. Like they truly believe that they've worked harder. They believe that they are smarter and stronger and better. So greedy people, it's kind of the same thing. Like greedy people don't believe they're greedy. They look at what they've got and they believe that they need it all. They need to keep it. They can't afford to give it away. They, they need it. They deserve it. They've earned it. And apathy is also really hard to name in people. It's really hard to confront because the apathetic person, the indifferent person would say, no, 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 it's not that I don't care. It's that I'm so busy. I'm so busy. I've got so many things on my plate. I couldn't possibly set those things aside and help out. And, and so it seems to me greed and apathy and pride, these might be actually three of the hardest sins to confront because the guilty person, the greedy culture, doesn't realize that they are guilty. And Amos is saying, like in his day, the elites in Israel and Judah, they're guilty of all three, not just pride, not just pride and greed, but all three, pride and greed and indifference. That's where we are. Now, what's God going to do? What is God going to do? How is God going to respond to the privilege of his people? And he tells them in chapter 6, verse 7, Therefore, you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. Verse 8, I abhor, like I, other versions say, I hate, I detest. I abhor the, the pride of Jacob and detest his fortresses. I will deliver up the city and everything in it. So we hear in these verses, God is making a promise of a, of a total judgment that's coming for his people, especially on the, the elite. Like none of them is going to be spared. These people who think they're the least deserving of judgment, the ones who think that they are the most insulated, the, thing, the ones who think that they're the, the most secure and safe from God's judgment, they're the ones who are going to receive it head on. And God is saying here, like every idol that you trust in instead of me, Everything that you've replaced me with, anything that gives your lives meaning besides me, it all is going to be destroyed. And that's what the exile will do. That's why I'm sending you into exile. So let's see how greedy you'll be. Let's see how proud you will be. Let's see how indifferent you are when you're not in your you know, ivory towers, when you're not laying and lounging on your beds and when you're, not, when you're not drinking wine by the bowlful and when you are shoulder to shoulder with the poor that you have ignored. Let's see how you do when you're 
the ones who are starving, when you're the ones who are dressed in rags, just like all of the people that you've ignored. That's how God deals with the pride and the greed and the indifference of his people. He promises them judgment is coming in the form of exile. And he's warning them. And you know, that's an effective strategy. That's an effective strategy. People tend to pay more attention to their neighbors once they start to realize time's up. Like once they realize the days of them enjoying all of the the luxuries of of life and enjoying their privilege, once they realize that like time's up, time's running out for them. And pretty soon they're going to be on the same level as all these people that they've ignored. When that starts to click for people, that changes how they relate to their neighbors. They pay more attention to their neighbors. You know, that was certainly true of Marie Antoinette. Towards the end of her reign as queen, Marie Antoinette, she paid way more attention to the poor than she did at the start. And maybe it's a coincidence, I don't think it was, but there was a storm brewing called the French Revolution, where the French people, the average men and women on the ground in France, they had come to this point when they were sick of kings and queens living large while they went hungry. They're sick of their lives being under the control of kings and queens who didn't know them and couldn't possibly relate to them because they lived in privilege and the the citizens, the people of France, lived on the ground and lived in poverty and starved. And so they come to this place when they're calling for the heads of the of the royals, they're calling for Marie Antoinette's head and about the same time, wouldn't you know, Marie Antoinette makes the decision to sell the royal flatware. Like she's going to sell all the you know, forks and spoons and knives and stuff. And she's going to use that money to buy grain for the poor. Well, that's actually a nice thing to do. She starts a home for unwed mothers at about the same time. And, you know, it's interesting. Marie Antoinette was queen for about 18 years. But then the revolution comes along. And it was this storm that transforms France and it brings the privileged class down from their privilege and it raises up the people who had been in the dirt and poor and voiceless and they are raised up and all of a sudden now they are equal. And it's at that point when Marie Antoinette fears that her time is up. That's when she's the most vulnerable and that's when we see a lot of her advocacy for the poor when it was almost too late. So that's certainly one way that God deals with privilege to, you know, knock down the idols that allow one group of people to live in comfort and ease and wealth and privilege while everybody around them is starving. That's one way God deals with it. And certainly that was his plan for Israel and Judah. He was going to send them into exile. And you and I might wonder, like, is that what's coming for Hamilton? Is it time's up for us? Is God bringing about a revolution? Is he going to turn everything in the city upside down? Is he going to send us into exile or something? Well, let's talk about that for a minute. Let's talk about what's going on in our city. I don't know if you know this or not, but there's actually a huge gap between the rich and the poor in Hamilton. Like when you compare neighborhoods in Hamilton, that exercise can actually be a lot like comparing first and third world countries. And one example of that is a neighborhood called Census Tract 37 or CT 37. Here it is on a map. If you're looking from east to west, it's the neighborhood between uh, Queen and James Streets. If you're going north to south, up and down, it's it's the neighborhood between Hunter Street and King Street. And within CT37, the median household income is uh, 
about $20,552, about $20,500. That's the median income for a household, not an individual, but for a household, okay? About half of the people in CT37, 46%, about half of them are living in poverty right now. That's the situation in, in CT37. Let's talk about life expectancy. The average life expectancy for the people living in CT37 is 66 years. 66 years. And right in the heart of CT37, you know, there's a, it's on the corner of, um, of King and Hess Streets. There's this, this uh, pair of buildings, the Vanier Towers. And the Vanier Towers are, are lived in by mostly low-income families. There's 565 people living there. And I've been in there. I don't know if you've been in there, but it, these are these, they're, they're not luxury apartments, okay? They're tiny, dank apartments. Um, I could tell you some awful stories about what goes on in this building. I won't. I will just tell you that the average life expectancy of the people living in Vanier Tower is 57 years. 57 years. Now, just a few minutes walked, maybe 10 minutes tops from, from Vanier Tower, heading south, is another neighborhood called CT17. Here it is uh, on the map. This is an area just south of Aberdeen, and it's at the base of the escarpment. It can be tough to navigate because it's all these like narrow winding streets, and within you know at the, at the ends of the streets are all these massive, massive mansions. There's actually a house for sale in this area. I just saw the other day. It's for sale for two point five million dollars, and it's not even a, you're not even close to the biggest house in the area. Now the median income in CT seventeen is $100,000 higher than in CT37. Let's talk about life expectancy again. The life expectancy in CT17 is 30 years longer than the person who lives a few blocks away in CT37. A difference of 30 years in life expectancy. Now, what this means is that in the same city, in the same city, there are these two very distinct groups. There's one that belongs up here and another who belongs down here. This group stays in their neighborhood. These people stay in theirs. These people stick to themselves and these people stick to themselves and the two do not mix. It's almost like there are two Hamiltons. Okay, it's almost like there's two Hamiltons. One Hamilton is a place of danger and sickness and crime and struggle and addiction and poverty. Another Hamilton is a place of privilege and comfort and ambition and ease, and opportunity, and prosperity. And it's like, is this okay? Like, what do we even do with this? What do we do with this? As God's people, what could we do with this? Now, let's think about, let's, let's think about this through the lens of faith for a minute, okay? I, I, do, I, have, I have some thoughts on this, but we just want to make sure we're seeing this through the right lens. I would want to say, first of all, we can't assume that God is angry at everybody in CT17 for their pride and their greed and their indifference, because we just don't know. Like, we can't assume that God looks at everybody who lives in CT37 and he sees them as a victim, as though every one of them is oppressed. We can't assume that. Although many, in many cases, I'm sure it's true. But we can't assume that God looks at everybody in CT37 as a victim. And we can't assume that he looks at everybody in CT17 as though they're like a Donald Trump. We can't assume that. 
Now, we've seen this before in the series as we've gone along. We've seen that we cannot draw a straight line from Amos's context to our own. It is far too simplistic to say that the warning that God had for the privileged class among the chosen people is the same warning that he has for unbelieving Hamilton. You with me on that? Like, I'm not going to say that what God wanted to warn the elites about in ancient Israel and Judah, that that's the exact same warning he wants to give for unbelieving Hamilton in 2022. I'm, I just, we just don't know that. And so that's not our message. It's not our mission to bring Amos's warning that he had for God's people in his day and take that and translate that exactly uh, without any nuance, without any contextualization and apply that to our city and the wealthy people in our city. No, that's not how we're going to do this. Our, our message, our mission is much more nuanced. In fact, it's much more beautiful than that. So how, how does the church take on privilege? How do we take on poverty? What do we do about this massive, unfair gap between the people in CT17 and the people in CT37? Well, I'll be honest and say off the top, I don't know what to do about that. There are smarter people more qualified people than me who are working on this thing right now. To be honest, I don't know for sure how the church should be involved as the church. I think we can debate that. I just don't know what it looks like. At the end of the day, though, I do know that we are not ancient Israel. We are not a theocracy, and we don't use political leverage in order to get things changed. We we are, as followers of Jesus... What we have is something better in the gospel. And the gospel reminds us, this is from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, it reminds us of what we know. We know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. In other words, we have everything that we need in Jesus. We actually do. Even if we have no worldly possessions, even if we're poor, starving in Christ, we are rich. Even if we don't lounge on ivory beds and even if we don't dine on choice meats and gorge ourselves with, with wine by the bowlful, we have everything that we need in Christ. We also know from 1 Corinthians 1 that God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. Like however the world measures importance, however the world measures status, however the world measures worth, God says, no, 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 no. God has flipped it all upside down, and in his kingdom, nobody has any advantage. doesn't matter whether you're from CT37 or CT17. doesn't matter what idols you used to lean on, doesn't matter what we used to boast in, all of that stuff, the cross has made all of it obsolete. And and I don't know the best way to fix poverty and privilege in a city. I, I really don't know the best way, but I have seen what can happen when people who believe this good news of Jesus and they take up their crosses and they follow Jesus in the city. And you know what I've seen them do? I think it looks like this. I think it shrinks the city. When people believe this, it shrinks the city. It shrinks the city by reminding us where our true identity is. 
you know, I think every once in a while we need to be reminded that we are not mainly Canadians. We're not even mainly Hamiltonians. We are mainly citizens of the kingdom of God. Okay, that's our citizenship. Our citizenship is in a holy city, the church. The church, that's our citizenship. The church is God's project where he has brought together people from all different walks of life, all the different languages, all the different colors, all the different classes, uh, all the different family structures. And we all come from all of these different walks of life. And even if we don't get to taste justice out in the broader city, okay, we should be able to taste it here. We should be able to experience it when we're together. That's how the church relates to the city. I really like how Pastor Tim Keller from Manhattan explains this. He says, the church is a city within a city. Listen to this. He says, Christians should be a dynamic counterculture. It's not enough for Christians to simply live as individuals in the city. They must live as a particular kind of community. Jesus told his disciples that they were a city on a hill. That showed God's glory to the world. Christians are called to be an alternate city within every earthly city, an alternate human culture within every human culture to show how idols like sex and money and power can be used in non-destructive ways. Now, when I read that, that really clicks. Like, we're not going to fix an entire city. We're not going to change the entire city uh, as a as one little church, we're not going to change the city. We're not going to fix it. But we might bless a bunch of the people in it. And together, we might reimagine the city of Hamilton as a collection of alternate cities within a city with uh, uh, of which we are one. Benediction is a city within the city. So is Philpott Memorial. So is St. Clair. So is James North. So is Mount Hamilton. And so is new city and on and on and on each of these jesus loving churches is a city within the city and we the net result is we have shrunk the city so that each of us can experience within this city within a city the things that we can't out in the broader city you with me on that like whatever you your experience has been out in the broader city of hamilton here in this city within a city We love and we respect and we forgive each other. We don't fear or exclude or shame each other. Not in here. Like in this city, it actually shouldn't matter if you're rich or you're poor. You should be able to flourish either way. Like in this city, there isn't anybody who should be able to have or, or benefit from any sort of unearned advantage or privilege. Not in this city. You with me on that? In this city, we're actually more alike than we are different. In this city, when one part of the family suffers, the whole thing suffers. Now, here's kind of what I think that that can look like. I really, I love this story that I came across recently. Back in 1898, okay, think of where we are in in Hamilton in 1898, before smartphones, before the internet, before television, okay, In 1898, Hamilton has electricity, and we've got telephone lines. Okay, those are the big innovations in 1898. And in 1898, in December 1898, Hamilton has a winter storm, and it's like nothing we had ever seen before. In fact, 
worse than most of what we've seen since then. But it's early December. Just imagine it's, it's been snowing for a few days and the city's already buried under a few feet of snow. Okay. And then the temperature rises so that the snow, a bit of the snow melts. And then just as the snow is starting to melt, the temperature drops again very suddenly. So everything on the ground, all that snow on the ground, it's, it's, um, it's got, there's like this hard shell of snow and ice covering everything that's on the ground. And, and all of that stuff is frozen in place. And everything that's above the ground is covered in a thick coating of ice. And the, the ice on the wires, for example, the, I mean, it was snapping trees all over the place. And there were, there were no power lines left in the city because almost all of the poles snapped under the weight of all of that ice on the power lines. In fact, I read about these live power lines that are lying out on the snow drifts and there's sparks flying from all of them and people were having to stay away in order to avoid being electrocuted by all the live wires all over the place in the city. Now remember, this is before snow plows, it's before salt trucks, it's before snow blowers, there's no subcontracted city surface services. Uh, the this, this streets are impassable. Nobody is leaving their house. Nobody's driving anywhere. Emergency services have stopped everywhere in the city. Okay? And it didn't matter where you were. The storm doesn't care whether you're rich or poor. It doesn't care whether you live in a mansion or in a shack. It doesn't care whether you're from Aberdeen or James Street North. It's, it, 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 you have no heat. You have no power at the end of this storm. But then something really interesting happened. You know, the people in these neighborhoods, a bunch of them at about the same time, they put on their coats and their boots and they grab their shovel. And one by one, they go outside and they, they start digging in these small communities. There's these, they form up and they start digging and they get to work. And they didn't even always know whose house they were digging out. They didn't know whether it was their own house or whether it was their neighbors, but they dig and they dig and they dig. And one by one, they're digging out these small communities. And so over in Westdale, a few dozen neighbors get together and they're out in the streets and they're digging out their homes in that part of the city. Well, the same is happening up in Ancaster and the same is happening over in Dundas. And up on the mountain, there, a bunch of people are getting together and they're digging each other out. And these neighborhoods, they're not digging out the entire city, but, but certainly their part. And downtown, hundreds of people get to work in their neighborhoods and they dig each other out and and then they dig out the fire trucks and they dig out the ambulances and they d dug out the police cars. And, and then within a few days, the power is restored. And then the phone lines. And what's interesting to me is this city had been shut down. Like the storm, it shut us down. And when that happened, all of a sudden, all of the pride and all of the greed and all of the apathy that used to divide the people of Hamilton... It didn't matter. Whatever the tension that there had been between the people of the different classes, whatever the idols that they had, when that storm came, all of a sudden everybody knew that they needed each other and they had to get to work or we don't survive this. Even the Marie Antoinettes of the city came out to dig and everybody is out and digging and community by community, they dig and they dig and they dig as though their lives depended on it because for a few days in the history of the city, they did. It did. That's how it was. And, and, and it seems to me that's how privilege will end. That's how we are going to go about addressing the ridiculous amounts of privilege and greed and pride and indifference 
in our city. It's going to happen when enough people in enough faith communities are moved to care for their own. Okay? When our hearts break for one another within these communities, when we see how foolish we have been toward one another, when we realize that we have settled for flowers and chocolates and fancy dresses instead of being on the ground with real people, and we will repent for it. That's when, it seems to me, that's when we will be living as a city within a city. Because, friends, we are the ones, we have seen the cross, we're the ones who've been transformed by what Jesus accomplished there. And, we, and so we can't possibly be proud or greedy or indifferent after that. Not, not really. Not really. I mean, and, and, and so if we've experienced that kind of transformation, then we and other churches, we're going to be the first ones to pick up our shovels and get to work. Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.